0: Section 13 of The Life of Abraham Lincoln, Volume 2, by Ida Tarbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 28, Lincoln's Re-Election in 1864, Part 2 The first effect of Lincoln's resolution in enforcing his own policy was to stimulate the search his opponents were making for a man to put in his place. At that time, the fall of 1863, Grant was the military hero of the country, and his name began to be urged for the presidency. Now, Lincoln had never seen Grant. Was he a man whose head could be turned by sudden notoriety? Could it be that, just as he had found the commander for whom he had searched so long, he was to lose him through a burst of popular gratitude and hero worship? He decided to find out Grant's feeling. He did this through Mr. J. Russell Jones of Chicago, a friend of the General. In 1863, says Mr. Jones, some of the newspapers, especially the New York Herald, were trying to boom Grant for the presidency. While General Grant was at Chattanooga, I wrote him, in substance, that I did not wish to meddle with his affairs, but that I could not resist, suggesting that he pay no attention to what the newspapers were saying in that connection. He immediately replied, saying that everything of that nature which reached him went into the wastebasket that he felt he had as big a job on hand as one man need desire, that his only ambition was to suppress the rebellion, and that, even if he had a desire to be president, he could not possibly entertain the thought of becoming a candidate for the office, nor of accepting a nomination where one tendered him, so long as there was a possibility of keeping Mr. Lincoln in the presidential chair. The whole spirit of his letter was one of the most perfect devotion to Lincoln, Before this letter reached me, however, President Lincoln telegraphed me to come to Washington. The telegram gave no hint of the business upon which he wished to see me, and I had no information upon which to found even a suspicion of its nature. On my way to the train, I stopped at my office in the post-office building, and in passing my box in the post-office, I opened it and took out several letters. I put them into my pocket and did not look at them until after I had gotten aboard the train. I then discovered that one of the letters was from General Grant. It was the letter of which I have already spoken. The circumstances always seemed to me to have been providential. Upon my arrival at Washington, I sent word to the President that I had arrived and would be glad to call whenever it was most convenient and agreeable for him to receive me. He sent back a request for me to call that evening at eight o'clock. I went to the White House at that hour. When the President had gotten through with the persons with whom he was engaged, I was invited into his room. The President then gave directions to say to all that he was engaged for the evening. Mr. Lincoln opened the conversation by saying that he was anxious to see somebody from the West with whom he could talk upon the general situation, and had therefore sent for me. Mr. Lincoln made no allusion whatever to Grant. I had been there but a few minutes, however, when I fancied that he would like to talk about Grant, and I interrupted him by saying, "'Mr. President, if you will excuse me for interrupting you, I want to ask you kindly to read a letter that I got from my box as I was on my way to the train.' Whereupon I gave him Grant's letter. He read it with evident interest." When he came to the part where Grant said that it would be impossible for him to think of the presidency as long as there was a possibility of retaining Mr. Lincoln in the office, he read no further, but arose and, approaching me, put his hand on my shoulder and said, My son, you will never know how gratifying that is to me. No man knows when that presidential grub gets to gnawing at him just how deep it will get until he has tried it. "'and I didn't know but what there was one gnawing at Grant.' "'The fact was that this was just what Mr. Lincoln wanted to know. "'He had said to Congressman Washburn, as I afterwards ascertained, "'About all I know of Grant I have got from you. "'I have never seen him. "'Who else besides you knows anything about Grant?' "'Washburn replied, "'I know very little about him. "'He is my townsman, but I never saw very much of him.' The only man who really knows Grant is Jones. He has summered and wintered with him. This was an allusion to the winter I spent with Grant in Mississippi at the time Van Dorn got into Holly Springs. It was this statement of Washburn's which caused Lincoln to telegraph me to come to Washington. But there were other names than Grant's in the mouth of the opposition. All through the winter of 1863-1864, in fact, the great majority of the Republican leaders were discussing different candidates. One of the men whom they approached was the Vice President, Hannibal Hamlin. He was a man of strong anti-slavery feeling, and it was well known that Lincoln had never gone fast enough to suit him. Would he accept the candidacy, he was asked? Mr. Hamlin would not listen to the suggestion. Lincoln, he said, was his friend. Their views were not always the same, but he believed in Lincoln and would not be untrue to his official relation. Not every member of the official family, however, had the same sense of loyalty. Indeed, before the end of 1863, an active campaign for the nomination was being conducted by one of the members of the cabinet, Mr. Chase, Secretary of the Treasury. Mr. Chase had been a rival of Lincoln in 1860. He had gone into the cabinet with a feeling very like that of Mr. Seward, that Lincoln was an inexperienced man, incapable of handling the situation, and that he or Mr. Seward would be the premier. Mr. Seward soon found that Lincoln was the master, and he was great enough to acknowledge the supremacy. But Mr. Chase was never able to realize Lincoln's greatness. He continued to regard him as an inferior mind, and seemed to believe, honestly enough, that the people would prefer himself as president if they could only have an opportunity to vote for him. All through the winter of 1863 he carried on a voluminous private correspondence in the interests of his nomination, and about the middle of the winter, he consented that his name be submitted to the people. The first conspicuous effort to promote his candidacy was a circular marked Confidential sent out in February 1864 by Senator Pomeroy of Kansas, calling on the country to organize in behalf of Mr. Chase. The secretary hastened to assure Mr. Lincoln that he knew nothing of this circular until he saw it in the newspapers, but he confessed that he had consented that his name be used as a presidential candidate, and said that If Mr. Lincoln felt that this impaired his usefulness as Secretary of the Treasury, he did not wish to continue in his position. Lincoln had known for many months of Mr. Chase's anxiety for the nomination, but he had studiously ignored it. He could not be persuaded by anybody to do anything to interrupt Mr. Chase's electioneering. Now that the Secretary had called his attention to the matter of the circular, however, he replied courteously, though indifferently. My knowledge of Mr. Pomeroy's letter, having been made public, came to me only the day you wrote, but I had, in spite of myself, known of its existence several days before. I have not yet read it, and I think I shall not. I was not shocked or surprised by the appearance of the letter, because I had had knowledge of Mr. Pomeroy's committee, and of secret issues which I supposed came from it, and of secret agents who I supposed were sent out by it, for several weeks. I have known just as little of these things as my friends have allowed me to know. They bring the documents to me, but I do not read them. They tell me what they think fit to tell me, but I do not inquire for more. Whether you shall remain at the head of the Treasury Department is a question which I will not allow myself to consider from any standpoint other than my judgment of the public service, and, in that view, I do not perceive occasion for a change. Mr. Chase was free, as far as Lincoln was concerned, to conduct his presidential campaign from his seat in the cabinet. But the Republicans of his state were not willing that he should do so, and three days after the Pomeroy Circular first appeared in print, the Union members of the legislature demanded, in the name of the people and of the soldiers of Ohio, that Lincoln be renominated. There was nothing to do then but for Mr. Chase to withdraw. Indeed, it was already becoming evident to Lincoln's most determined antagonists in the party that it would be useless for them to try to nominate anybody else. On all sides, in state legislatures, union leagues, caucuses, the people were demanding that Lincoln be renominated. The case was a curious one. Four years before, Lincoln had been nominated for the presidency of the United States because he was an available candidate not from any general confidence that he was the best man in the Republican Party for the place. Now, on the contrary, it was declared that he would have to be nominated, because he had won the confidence of the people so completely that no candidate would have any chance against him. In four years he had risen from a position of comparative obscurity to the most generally trusted man in the North. The great reason for this confidence was that the people understood exactly what he was trying to do and why he was trying to do it. From the beginning of his administration, in fact, Lincoln had taken the people into his confidence. Whenever a strong opposition to his policy developed in any quarter, it was his habit to explain, in a public letter, exactly why he was doing what he was doing, and why he was not doing the thing he was urged to do. He had written such a letter to Greeley in August 1862, explaining his view of the relation of emancipation to the war. Such were his letters in June 1863, replying to the Democrats of New York and Ohio who protested against the arrest of Vallandigham for treasonable speech. Such his letter to James C. Conkling in August 1863, explaining his views of peace, of emancipation, of colored troops these public letters are lincoln's most remarkable state papers they are invincible in their logic and incomparable in their simplicity and lucidity of expression by means of them he convinced the people of his own rigid mental honesty put reasons for his action into their mouths gave them explanations which were demonstrations they believed in him because he had been frank with them, and because he tried to make matters so clear to them, used words they could understand, kept the principle free from all non-essential and partisan considerations. Scarcely less important than these letters in convincing the people of the wisdom of his policy were Lincoln's stories and sayings. In February 1864, just after the popular demand for his renomination began to develop, the New York Evening Post published two columns of Lincoln's stories. The New York Herald jeered at the collection as the first electioneering document of the campaign and reprinted them as proof of the unfitness of Lincoln for the presidency. But jeer as it would, the Herald could not hide from its readers the wit and the philosophy of the jokes every one of them had been used to explain a point or to settle a question, and under their laughter was concealed some of the man's soundest reasoning. Indeed, at that very moment the herald might have seen, if it had been more discerning, that it was a Lincoln saying going up and down the country that was serving as one of the strongest arguments for his renomination, the remark that it is never best to swap horses in crossing a stream." Lincoln had used it in speaking of the danger of changing presidents in the middle of the war. He might have written a long message on the value of experience in a national crisis, and it would have been meaningless to the masses, but this homely figure of swapping horses in the middle of the stream appealed to their humor and their common sense. It was repeated over and over in the newspapers of the country. It was in every man's mouth, and was of inestimable value in helping plain people to see the danger of changing presidents while the war was going on. The Union Convention was set for June. As the time approached, Lincoln enthusiasm grew. It was fed by Grant's steady beating back of Lee toward Richmond. The country, wild with joy, cried out that before July Grant would be in the Confederate capital, and the war would be ended. The opposition to Lincoln that had worked so long steadily dwindled in the face of military success, until all of which it was capable was a small convention in May, in Cleveland, at which Fremont was nominated. The Union convention met in June. That it would nominate Lincoln was a foregone conclusion. The convention has no candidate to choose, said the Philadelphia press. Choice is forbidden it by the previous action of the people." the preliminary work of the convention seating delegates and framing a platform was rapidly disposed of then on june eighth after a skirmish about the method of nominating the candidates illinois presented the name of abraham lincoln a call of states was immediately taken one after another they answered pennsylvania for lincoln new york for lincoln new england solid for him kentucky solid and so on through the 30 states and territories represented. Only one dissenting delegation in the entire 30, Missouri, whose radical union representatives gave 22 votes for Grant. On the second reading of the vote, this ballot was changed, so that the final vote stood at 506 for Lincoln. The president took his renomination calmly, I did not allow myself to suppose, he said to a delegation from the National Union League, which came to congratulate him, that either the convention or the league have concluded to decide that I am either the greatest or best man in America, but rather they have concluded that it is not best to swap horses while crossing the river, and have further concluded that I am not so poor a horse that they might not make a botch of it trying to swap." The renomination of Lincoln had taken place when the country and the administration were rejoicing in Grant's successes, and still prophesying that the war was practically over. The developments of the next few days after the nomination put a new look on the military situation. Instead of entering Richmond, Grant attacked Petersburg, but before he could capture it, the town had been so reinforced that it was evident nothing but a siege could reduce it. Now the Army of the Potomac, in its march from the Rapidan to the James, extending from May 4th to June 24th, had lost nearly 55,000 men. If Petersburg was to be besieged, it was clear that the army must be reinforced, and that there must be another draft. The President had hinted that this was possible only a week after his nomination, in an address in Philadelphia at a sanitary fair. If I shall discover, he asked, that General Grant and the noble officers and men under him can be greatly facilitated in their work by a sudden pouring forward of men and assistance. will you give them to me? Are you ready to march? Cries of yes answered him. Then I say stand ready, he replied, for I am watching for the chance. A few days later he visited Grant and rode the lines in front of Petersburg. All that he saw, all the events of the following days only made it clearer to him that there must be another outpouring of men. His friends besought him to try to get on without it. The country was growing daily more discouraged as it realized that its hope of speedy victory was vain. A new draft would arouse opposition, give a new weapon to the Democrats, make his re-election uncertain. He could not afford it. He refused their counsels. We must lose nothing even if I am defeated, he said. I am quite willing the people should understand the issue. My re-election will mean that the rebellion is to be crushed by force of arms. And on July 18th, he called for 500,000 volunteers for one, two, and three years. All the discontent that had been prophesied broke forth on this call. The awful brutality of the war came upon the country as never before. There was a revulsion of feeling against the sacrifice going on, such as had not been experienced since the war began. All the complaints that had been urged against Lincoln, both by radical Republicans and by Democrats, broke out afresh. The draft was talked of as if it were the arbitrary freak of a tyrant it was declared that lincoln had violated constitutional rights personal liberty the liberty of the press the rights of asylum that in short he had been guilty of all the abuses of a military dictator much bitter criticism was made of his treatment of peace overtures It was declared that the Confederates were anxious to make peace and had taken the first steps, but that Lincoln was so bloodthirsty that he was unwilling to use any means but force. Even Horace Greeley joined now in this criticism, though up to this summer he had stood with the President on the question. In May 1864, when Congressman Dawson proposed in the Senate that the North should tender the olive branch of peace as an exchange for the sword, the Tribune ridiculed the idea and suggested that Mr. Dawson, without waiting for the House to adopt his resolution, should start at once on his private account for the camp of General Lee, with a whole cartload of olive branches. "'Some good may come of it,' said Mr. Greeley. "'Mr. Dawson may possibly be treated as a spy.' Later, when peace was proposed in the Confederate Congress, Mr. Greeley said, "'Speaking generally, it is safe to say that if there had been any foundation other than the unconditional surrender of the Confederacy upon which to build it, we would have had peace long ago. But the quarrel is a mortal one. There can be no peace the terms of which are not dictated and enforced by the Congress of the United States.' On June 10th, in answer to an attack on the administration for refusing to allow a Confederate gunboat to bring Stevens to Washington, Greeley said, "'The naked truth lies here. Up to this hour, the rebels have never been ready or willing to treat with our government on any other footing than that of independence, and this we have not been inclined to concede.' When they, or we, have been beaten into a willingness to concede the vital matter in the dispute, negotiations for peace will be in order, and not till then. In spite of these utterances, however, Mr. Greeley wavered in July upon receiving from an irresponsible and officious individual known as Colorado Jewett a communication stating that two ambassadors of Davis and Company were in Canada, with full and complete powers for a peace, and requesting Mr. Greeley to come immediately to Niagara. Taking the matter seriously, he wrote the president a long and hysterical letter urging that the offer be accepted, and someone sent to Niagara. Mr. Lincoln saw his chance to demonstrate to the country the futility of peace negotiations. He replied immediately, appointing Greeley himself as an ambassador to meet the parties. If you can find any person anywhere, he wrote, professing to have any proposition of Jefferson Davis in writing for peace, embracing the restoration of the Union, and abandonment of slavery. Whatever else it embraces, say to him he may come to me with you, and that if he really brings such proposition, he shall, at the least, have safe conduct with the paper, and without publicity, if he chooses, to the point where you shall have met him, the same if there be two or more persons. This was a turn that the editor of the Tribune had evidently not expected, but Mr. Lincoln insisted that he carry out the commission, his only conditions being the ones stated above, and sent him the following paper. To whom it may concern, any proposition which embraces the restoration of peace, the integrity of the whole Union, and the abandonment of slavery, and which comes by and with an authority that can control the armies now at war against the United States, will be received and considered by the executive government of the United States, and will be met by liberal terms on other substantial and collateral points and the bearer, or bearers thereof, shall have safe conduct both ways. Abraham Lincoln. Mr. Greeley went to Niagara, but as it turned out, the persons whom he had taken seriously had no authority whatever from Davis, and they declared that no negotiations for peace were possible if Mr. Lincoln's conditions must be conceded. So the conference, which ran over a number of days, and which was enveloped in much mystery, fell through. At the end it got into the newspapers, though only a portion of the correspondence was published at the time. It was evident to people of sense, however, that Mr. Greeley had been hoodwinked. It was evident, too, that the President was willing to carry on peace negotiations if those points for which the war had been fought were yielded. All the effectiveness of peace cries after this was gone. "'Senator Harlan of Iowa, who, with other Republicans, appreciated thoroughly the clever way in which Lincoln had disposed of the editor of the Tribune, said to him one day on the terrace of the White House, "'Some of us think, Mr. Lincoln, that you didn't send a very good ambassador to Niagara.' "'Well, I'll tell you about that, Harlan,' replied the President. "'Greeley kept abusing me for not entering into peace negotiations.' He said he believed we could have peace if I would do my part, and when he began to urge that I send an ambassador to Niagara to meet the Confederate emissaries, I just thought I would let him go up and crack that nut for himself. As July dragged on and August passed, there was no break in the gloom. Farragut was threatening Mobile, Sherman, Atlanta, Grant, Petersburg. But all of these three great undertakings seemed to promise nothing but a fruitless slaughter of men. The despair and indignation of the country in this dreadful time all centered on Lincoln. Republicans, hopeless of re-electing him, talked of replacing him by another candidate. The Democrats argued that the war and all its woes were the direct result of his tyrannical and unconstitutional policy. The more violent intimated that he should be put out of the way. A sign of the bitterness against him little noted at the moment, but sinister in the light of after-events, was an inscription found one August morning written on the window of a room in a Meadville, Pennsylvania hotel. The room had been occupied the night before by a favorite actor, J. Wilkes Booth. The inscription ran, abe lincoln departed this life august thirteenth eighteen sixty four by the effects of poison in the dreadful uproar of discontent one cry alarmed lincoln more than all the others this was the revival of the demand that grant should be presented for the presidency it was not so much the fear of defeat by grant that affected him as it was the dread that the campaign would be neglected if the general went into politics he concluded that he ought to sound Grant again. Colonel John Eaton, now General, a friend of Grant, was in Washington at the time, and often with Mr. Lincoln. Referring to the efforts making to nominate Grant, Lincoln asked if the Colonel knew what the General thought of the attempt. No, the Colonel said, he didn't. Well, said Lincoln, If Grant is the great general we think he is, he must have some consciousness of it, and know that he cannot be satisfied with himself and secure the credit due for his great generalship if he does not finish the job. And he added, I don't believe they can get him to run. The president then asked the colonel if he could not go to Grant and find out for him how the general felt. Colonel Eaton started at once on his errand. Reaching headquarters and being received by the General, he worked his way to the subject by recounting how he had met persons, recently in traveling, who had asked him if he thought Grant could be induced to run against Lincoln, not as a partisan, but as a citizen's candidate, to save the Union. Grant brought his hand down emphatically on the strap-arm of his camp chair. "'They can't do it. They can't compel me to do it.' "'Have you said this to the President?' asked Colonel Eaton." No, said Grant, I have not thought it worth while to assure the President of my opinion. I consider it as important for the cause that he should be elected as that the Army should be successful in the field. Lincoln's friends took the situation at this period more seriously than he. Their alarm is graphically pictured in the following letter from Leonard Sweat to his wife. It was probably written toward the end of August. Astor House, New York. Monday, 1864. My dear wife, the fearful things in relation to the country have induced me to stay a week here. I go to Washington tonight and can't see how I can get away from there before the last of the week. A summary of movements is as follows. The malicious foes of Lincoln are calling or getting up a buffalo convention to supplant him. They are Sumner, Wade, Henry Winter Davis, Chase, Fremont, Wilson, etc. The Democrats are conspiring to resist the draft. We seized this morning 3,000 pistols going to Indiana for distribution. The War Democrats are trying to make the Chicago nominee a loyal man. The Peace Democrats are trying to get control of the government and through alliance with Jefferson Davis to get control of both armies and make universal revolution necessary. The most fearful things are probable. I am acting with Thurlow Weed, Raymond, etc., to try to avert. There is not much hope. Unless material changes can be wrought, Lincoln's election is beyond any possible hope. It is probably clean gone now. Lincoln himself had made up his mind that he would be defeated. What would be his duty then? It was so clear to him that he wrote it down on a slip of paper. Executive Mansion, Washington, August 23, 1864 This morning, as for some days past, it seems exceedingly probable that this administration will not be re-elected. Then it will be my duty to so cooperate with the president-elect as to save the union between the election and the inauguration, as he will have secured his election on such ground that he cannot possibly save it afterward. A. Lincoln he folded the slip and when the cabinet met he asked the members to put their names on the back what was inside he did not tell them in the incessant buffeting of his life he had learned that the highest moral experience of which a man is capable is standing clear before his own conscience he laid the paper away a compact with his conscience in case of defeat The Democrats had deferred their national convention as long as possible, hoping for a military situation which would enable them to win the people. They could not have had a situation more favorable to their plans. But they miscalculated in one vital particular. They took the despair of the country as a sign that peace would be welcome even at the cost of the Union, and they adopted a peace platform. They nominated on this platform a candidate vowed to war and to the Union, General McClellan. So unpopular was the combination that General McClellan, in accepting the nomination, practically repudiated the platform. But at this moment, something further interfered to save the administration. Sherman captured Atlanta, and Farragut took Mobile Bay. Sherman and Farragut, said Seward, have knocked the bottom out of the Chicago nominations. If they had not quite done that, they had at least given heart to Lincoln's supporters, who went to work with a will to secure his reelection. The following letter by Leonard Sweat shows something of what was done. Executive Mansion, Washington, September eighth, 1864 My Dear Wife There has never been an instance in which Providence has kindly interposed in our behalf in our national struggles in so marked and essential manner as in the recent Union victories. You know I had become very fearful before leaving home. When I arrived in New York, I found the most alarming depression possessing the minds of all of the republicans Greeley, Beecher, Raymond, Weed— and all the small politicians, without exception, utterly gave up in despair. Raymond, the chairman of the National Committee, not only gave up, but would do nothing. Nobody would do anything. There was not a man doing anything except mischief. A movement was organizing to make Mr. Lincoln withdraw or call a convention and supplant him. I felt it my duty to see if some action could not be inaugurated. I got Raymond, after great labor, to call the committee at Washington three days after I would arrive here, and came first to see if Mr. Lincoln understood his danger and would help to set things in motion. He understood fully the danger of his position, and for once seemed anxious I should try to stem the tide bearing him down. When the committee met, they showed entire want of organization and had not one dollar of money." Maine was calling for speakers. Two men were obtained, and I had to advance them a hundred dollars each to go. The first gleam of hope was in the Chicago Convention. The evident depression of the public caused the peace men to control that convention. And then, just as the public began to shrink from accepting it, God gave us the victory in Atlanta, which made the ship right itself, as a ship in a storm does after a great wave has nearly capsized it. Washburn of Illinois, a man of great force, came, and he and I have been working incessantly. I have raised and provided $100,000 for the canvas. Don't think this is for improper purposes. It is not. Speakers have to be paid, documents have to be sent, and innumerable expenses have to be incurred. The secessionists are flooding the Northwest with money, Voorhees and vallandigham are arming the people there and are trying to make the draft an occasion for an uprising we are in the midst of conspiracies equal to the french revolution i have felt it my solemn duty under these circumstances to stay here i have been actuated by no other motive than that of trying to save our country from further dismemberment and war People from the West, and our best people, say if we fail now, the West will surely break off and go with the South. Of course, that would be resisted, and the resistance would bring war. All through September and October, the preparation for the November election continued. The loyal governors of the North, men to whom the Union cause owed much more than has ever been fully realized, worked incessantly. The great orators of the Republican Party were set at work, Carl Schurz even giving up his opportunity in the army to take the platform, and many an officer and private who had influence in their communities going home on furloughs to aid in electioneering. The most elaborate preparations were made for getting the vote of every man, most of the states allowing the soldiers to vote in the field. Where this was not arranged for, the War Department did its utmost to secure furloughs for the men. Even convalescents from the hospitals were sent home to vote. In this great burst of determined effort, Lincoln took little part. The country understood, he believed, exactly what his election meant. It meant the preservation of the Union by force. It meant that he would draft men so long as he needed them that he would suspend the writ of habeas corpus and employ a military tribunal whenever he deemed it necessary it meant too that he would do his utmost to secure an amendment to the constitution abolishing slavery forever for the platform the union convention had adopted before nominating him contained that plank he could not be persuaded by the cautious and timid to modify or obscure this policy he wanted the people to understand exactly what he intended, he said, and whenever he did speak or write, it was only to reiterate his principles in his peculiarly plain, unmistakable language. Nor would he allow any interference with the suffrage of men in office. They must vote as they pleased. My wish is, he wrote to the postmaster of Philadelphia, who had been accused of trying to control the votes of his subordinates, that you will do just as you think fit with your own suffrage in the case and not constrain any of your subordinates to do other than as he thinks fit with his thus when the election finally came off on november eighth there was not a man of any intelligence in the country who did not know exactly what he was voting for if he voted for lincoln what these men thought of him the work of that day showed out of two hundred thirty three electoral votes, General McClellan received twenty one, two hundred twelve being for Lincoln. The opportunity to finish the task was now his End of Section thirteen